In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Less than one year ago, we recorded a podcast on mass shootings, episode 39. Please go back and listen. Here we are again, another mass shooting. The discussion today is not about mass shootings, but instead about the psychological divide in our country on beliefs or solutions. There is published scientific evidence that SSRIs can induce violence and mania. On today's podcast, we discuss a denial of evidence. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. I'm Dr. Roger McFillin. In the studio today with Sean and Kelly. Fellas, a lot of people think I'm on Twitter throughout the day, and I know it can look like that, but Twitter has a feature called Scheduled Tweets. So I generally have my coffee in the morning after my workout, and I'll schedule tweets throughout the day. Often I do not have the time to go back and look at the comments. As fate would have it, I scheduled a tweet four days ago. I don't remember the day of the school shooting. It might have been Tuesday. But I scheduled a tweet that morning before the mass shooting. And this is the tweet. It's a bad idea to ignore how many school shooters were on at least one psychiatric drug. To ignore the black box warnings on antidepressant. To ignore the FDA's adverse event reporting system and published research on psychiatric drugs role in increasing suicide and violence. So I did schedule that before the news broke of the school shooting later that day. Oh, it, wa- it, it was, wasn't, you didn't see the news and then post it? No. No kidding. What I, made you post that uh, that morning? So I was looking at research on violence, suicidality from SSRI use. And it was in response to the debate I had with Dr. Beach I wanted to understand some of the data. And one of the papers I was looking at was the VAERS adverse reporting system through the FDA on these drugs, which aren't randomized controlled clinical trials. It's kind of this idea that everyday people who start taking these drugs can report an adverse event through the website. So I was just looking at that, but I already know about the previous research on Uh, akathisia, the level of agitation and activation that can occur in SSRI use for people who previously did not have those symptoms. We've done a podcast ourselves here of a gentleman where an SSRI-induced akathisia, delusions, and later violence. So I I just decided to use that as part of a theme for what I was posting. Informed consent is a legal and ethical imperative. As you know, one of my missions is to provide people with information so they can make better informed decisions around healthcare and make sure that the science is disseminated. What happened after that tweet was a level of vitriol and disrespect that I'm not used to receiving 
especially around the intention of it. A lot of those were from medical professionals calling me names. Um, those ad hominem attacks, mm -hmm. not really interested in having a discussion regarding some of this science and research, given that we just had a school shooting event, but rather simplifying it to, it is the guns, dummy. It's the guns. It's the gun. As if the gun itself killed people without a human being pulling the trigger. Right. Now, I don't want to get into debates on gun control because it's a divisive issue. I'm much more concerned about what would drive an individual to want to kill innocent people. And when it's reported that this individual is under psychiatric care and potentially hormones, and we have a lot of case law that shows violence has been induced by multiple psychiatric drugs, I do not understand why that's not part of the conversation. I mean, I do understand. I do want to have that conversation today. I'm really concerned that the American people are not provided with evidence, science, that's clearly stated out there, even medical professionals, to understand the risks of these drugs. And the United States is much different because it's not like we're just providing one psychiatric drug in a safe manner. Our healthcare system has become an assembly line. And I talk about the assembly line, quick evaluations, drugs, and not effective monitoring. But in the psychiatric system, we're seeing children developing brains being placed on multiple psychiatric drugs, something we do not have research for. We do not understand the interaction of all those mind and mood-altering drugs. If one drug can induce violence, delusions, harm to self or others, what do multiple drugs do? And so why isn't that part of the conversation? And I had to think back um, and really take, take a step back, honestly, about how a medical professional trained in the scientific method could respond publicly on a forum like Twitter, not only medical professionals, other doctoral level mental health professionals, how they could respond in a way that either dismisses or minimizes this evidence. And beliefs are so powerful. I think our beliefs become our reality. And I don't think facts matter anymore. When you are trained to view drugs as healthcare, to view drugs as medicine, medicinal, and you are conditioned to believe that the drugs improve well-being, they're used for people who are ill, they help people function more effectively, and then any debate around their adverse reactions becomes this idea that you are stigmatizing mental health-related conditions. The argument stops. The debate stops. The discussion stops. The evaluation of research stops. And so I think for today's podcast, I want to be able to analyze a little bit what I know, publish scientific research, but also be able to get into a conversation culturally about what is happening in the United States, where this 
information is not available to the public, medical professionals that we trust are minimizing this data, we are more divisive than ever. So it's turning into a drug issue. I mean, it's, it's turning into a, a, a gun issue and gun control issue, which has broad implications for where does the, the government have a, a right to restrict freedoms that are afforded to the American people based on the Second Amendment um, without having a more thorough conversation about the mental stability, the mental health of people in our culture, how they're treated, and how designations of mental illness are provided. That's important. The Twitter culture is something I'd like to get into um, because I think we all have professional responsibilities. We have professional responsibilities to provide information that is accurate. And we have a responsibility as a licensed professional to make sure that that information is accurate as possible. And if there's any, at any point, you know, concerns for how another professional is presenting, open that up for respectful debate. And that's what I've done. I have a public forum with this podcast that offers people's opportunity to get into a 90-minute discussion, not limited characters on, on Twitter. And so I was really upset by some of the, the comments that were made by people that we need to trust to be critical thinkers and we need to trust to be able to have analyzation of the data in order to present that to their patients because their patients are not informed. So what's the, what's the number one underlying reason you believe that these medical professionals did these ad hominem attacks? Well, obviously what I was posting was threatening. And it's, it's threatening at a professional and personal level. There's got to be a level of cognitive dis dissonance that is created when there's evidence or information that is presented that is opposed to what you are taught and what you believe to be true. These drugs have been widely prescribed for 30 plus years, close to 40 years. There are medical professionals who entire lives, professional lives, have been writing prescription after prescription. It's all they know. So it is very threatening for them to come to a, some conclusion that they might be harming their patients, that the potential exists to harm their patients. And listen, I, I am not stating that there isn't a large population of people who have not been adversely affected. I'm not making that statement. I'm saying there is a portion of the population for what seems to be good reason, I'll talk a little bit about the science, that cannot metabolize these drugs and their adverse effects are much greater. So it's not only the, the medical professionals, but I think there are, is a substantial portion of the population who, is, who identifies themselves to be mentally ill and follow the medical recommendations. And they trust their doctors that this is well-established and sound science. It's way too threatening for them to consider that these drugs have negative health effects. It's, very, it's too threatening to, for them to understand that these drugs can induce violence 
in a percentage of the population. Obviously not everybody, a percentage of the population. We need to know who they are. We need to know when you develop a medical intervention, who is going to be harmed by that medical intervention. All humans are not the same. Children aren't the same as adults. Humans come from diverse genetic backgrounds. What might potentially help somebody in one context and situation can end the life of another. And so when you widely apply the same intervention to the entire human population and you generalize that these drugs are safe and they're efficacious, we know that's not true. We know that's not true. That is a lie. That's a lie. Common sense knows that's not true. Scientific data knows that's not true. Yeah, I think, <clears throat> excuse my voice for this episode, everybody. Um, <clears throat> if you, let's remove SSRIs from the idea of metabolizing drugs. I mean, anytime somebody goes in for a treatment, let's say cancer, sometimes people are receptive to the treatment and they get better and their cancer goes into remission. But how often does somebody get treatment and the doctors say, your body's not responding to the treatment? Like if you can, if you can come to an understanding that that's possible in that area and apply the same level of thinking over to something like a, a psychotropic medication drug. That would be, is that more difficult to do with psychotropic drugs? Because if you do a blood test and things like that for cancer that yeah. they could tell, I think this is a little bit more nuanced because of the fact that there is no necessary blood test or you can't go inside the brain to see what's causing the mental illness, perhaps. Very important point. Yeah, yeah, good point. It's a very important point because it just speaks to how unscientific this is. There is a veil of scientific legitimacy in which it's communicated to the American public. Anything that I put on Twitter... Trust me, I'm going to pack it up with something that I'm reading, published science. I, the paper in front of me um, is Suicidality, Violence, and Mania Caused by SSRIs, a Review and Analysis. That's by Peter Bregan. This is older, 2003. But I'm just going to start with the introduction. Soon after the introduction of the first SSRI, which was Prozac, into the United States marketplace in January 1988, Reports began to appear describing fluoxetine, which is Prozac, induced violence against self and others. In May 1990, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration required the manufacturer of Prozac, Eli Lilly and Company, to add suicidal ideation and violent behaviors to their post-introduction report section of its label. Okay, that's Prozac, widely described as the safest of the SSRIs. This is published research. This is the drug companies themselves adding to the post-introduction reports. And I'm not making this up, Twitter medical professionals. Let's, I, I opened up your tweet. I just want to read it again. And maybe we can break it down point by point. It's a bad idea to ignore how many school shooters were on at least one psychiatric drug. What's, is there anything controversial about that? It, there shouldn't be. I mean, it's it, a data point. It's a data point. It becomes controversial when when people uh, believe that I am attacking mental health treatment and stigmatizing mental health treatment 
And for people who, who do not believe, and we're talking about beliefs, it has nothing to do with facts, do not believe that these drugs can induce violent behavior. Here's your next one. To ignore the blacks, black box warning on antidepressants. It's there. You're reading it right now. It's serious. It's telling you that this could potentially happen and it's something you need to be aware of and look out for. It's very difficult to get a black box warning. And then your final point, to ignore the FDA's adverse event reporting system and published research on psychiatric drugs role in increasing suicide and violence. In 2003, the British Committee on Safety of Medicines and the US FDA issued warnings about increased rates of self-harm and suicidal behavior in children and youth under 18 who were taking Paxil. Also in 2003, the manufacturer of Effexor, which is then Lafaxine, issued a similar Dear Doctor letter warning about the increased risk of hostility and suicide-related adverse events such as suicidal ideation and self-harm in children ages 6 to 17. Another paper titled Treatment Emergent Violence to Self and Others, a Literature Review of Neuropsychiatric Adverse Reactions for Antidepressant and Neuroleptic Psychiatric Drugs and General Medications, published by the authors Catherine Clark, Jan Evans, Kelly Brogan. Psychiatric drugs and some general medications have effects that are not always the ones intended. Reactions to different drugs and to drug-drug combinations are governed by individual metabolizing rates. Phase one metabolism takes place via the cytochrome P450 enzymes with 57 human genes identified that are genetically variable or polymorphic. The population are coded as serotonin trans, I'm sorry, the population are coded as poor, extensive, intermediate, or ultra rapid metabolizers. So there's great variability amongst the population in how they metabolize these drugs. Variations in the serotonin transporter gene, 5-HTTLPR, and serotonin receptors, 5-HT, influence the outcome of serotonergic medications. It is established genetic polymorphisms in the CYP450 and serotonin metabolizing system cause higher drug blood levels, which are associated with neuropsychiatric adverse reactions, such as akathisia. It's widely recognized that akathisia precedes violence, suicidality, homicide, mania, and psychosis, and is often mistaken by our medical professionals as new or emergent mental illness and treated with further ineffective counterproductive psychiatric drugs. Published research. So that means you, someone has a drug reaction, worsens, they double down on more drugs, which can create violence. One final paper, and there's many more, and I ask people to do research on their own. It's widely available to all of us. This is Precursors to Suicidality and Violence on Antidepressant, Antidepressants, a Systematic Review of Trials in Adult Healthy Volunteers, 
published by the Royal Society of Medicine. Um, trying to get the date on this, 2016. Conclusions, antidepressants double the occurrence of events in adult healthy volunteers that can lead to suicide and violence. So why is this being ignored? I'm reading through your comments. A lot of it has to do with the, the uh, reaction, high emotional reaction of it's the guns. Yeah. That's what I see a lot of the reaction is, is that it's the guns and that somehow you, like I said, you are being almost like um, they're, pitch, they're cornering you into you are a pro-gun individual. You know what I mean? Like that's it. That's all they want to focus on. And all you said in that tweet was just a question of, look, maybe, maybe we should be looking at something different here. I don't. I, I'm seeing a lot of that. Yeah, let me ask you guys a, a question. So when when someone is under the influence of alcohol and drives a vehicle and kills innocent people, we don't blame the car. We blame the individual for the responsibility of harm. There's also then protections in society. So people who have been convicted of DUI offenses, there's restrictions of those freedoms. So when we talk about gun control, I don't understand the argument well, to be honest with you. I don't believe that gun control is going to decrease mass shootings. It won't. And the reasons I, I believe that it won't decrease mass shootings is that most of the weapons in mass shootings are illegally obtained. And that's in our inner cities. Now, we look at the school shootings. Um, there's a number of things that are restricted by law in the United States. The United States is a very large country. The... The drug laws are probably the ones that are most stand out, that we have uh, enforcement of drug laws, and there are drugs are illegal. But illegal drugs are easily obtained within the culture. I don't think it begins to solve the problem. Um, the United States is a, is a different culture and it's a different country. It's based on, on freedom. Um, the constitutional rights that have been developed have were developed with a lot of foresight and historical context. When you look at the history of the world, how were people governed? Look at the history of world governments. How were people governed? Authoritarian, monarchies. Yeah, that means, Sean, if the government wanted to come into your home and search your home, they could. Because it's not your home. You're my subject, right? Um, I own you. I own your property. You cannot defend yourself. Uh, certain people have the rights to weapons and search and seizures, but not you. And so this entire country was built off of premises. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have discussion around laws to protect innocent people from people who are criminals or from people who might be uh, mentally ill. But it, you have to recognize it is a slippery slope. 
Because define mental illness. What, what is mental illness? Define it. Has anybody clearly defined it? No. So mental illness in the way that the DSM or a psychiatrist could define mental illness. If you're afraid to, to do a speech in class. You're anxious. Because you're socially anxious. Is that mental illness? No, that's... If you're, grieving the, if you're grieving the loss of a loved one, is that mental illness? If going through a two-week period in your life where you're sad and not sleeping well, is that mental illness? No. So then your rights to defend yourself can be taken away by a doctor who arbitrarily defines mental illness? Like these, This is a slippery slope. This isn't an easy conversation to have. But you have to ask these questions because culturally, they're just saying take away the guns and no one can shoot anybody. Yeah, but your tweet didn't say anything about guns. It didn't. <laughs> it didn't. And I didn't even really want to get into this conversation. They assigned that position to your, your tweet, which you didn't. You I didn't did not. mention. I did not. Yeah. And shouldn't we, as mental health professionals, be really concerned? Law enforcement professionals, the government, what would drive somebody to open fire on innocent people. That's not being discussed by our current administration. No, all you did say was um, we shouldn't ignore it. We shouldn't ignore all these other contributing factors that could be causing these mass shootings from happening. To overlook them and ignore them and immediately put your attention towards one thing as a solution is just a mistake. Well, I think it's criminal negligence and ignorance. So if you're going if if we know scientifically that there is a drug that if you take, you could kill yourself or somebody else. And we have emerging evidence that says that there are wide variations of people who um are unable to metabolize the drug. And millions and millions of people taking the drug. Isn't it negligence to not, one, inform the person, but two, to have some form of testing process to determine whether they are at risk? Even if you believe the drug is life-saving, which I do not, I do not believe the evidence is that they're, they're life-saving, but I understand that's what you're told, medical professionals, it's what you're told. That's not the research you've done on your own. Let's not, let's be very, very clear and we have to have an upcoming podcast on how psychiatrists are actually trained and how primary care doctors and nurse practitioners are trained in this because I've been doing a little background research lately and it's embarrassing. But with that, with that being said, um, even if you did believe it was life-saving and that the benefit could outweigh the risks, it is, you are professionally accountable to understand the risks and communicate them to your patients. That's what I'm saying. When we uh, did our earlier podcast, got less than a year ago about mass shooting, uh, the data showed that it's only like less than 1% of mass shootings are school shootings, but yet they get an enormous amount of attention because of the emotion and the fear that results from it. Because, you, well, I, I think it, it, it impacts the privileged, right? So although in our inner cities we have mass shootings almost every day, 
This is the suburban mom. This is the uh, this is the academic elite. This is the media, and this is the government who are using this as an opportunity to politicize the issue based on their own ideological beliefs. So it gets scary, right? Only the school shootings will they provoke young moms because it's personalized. And they believe that somehow they'd be protected if we had stricter gun laws. And we're not asking the questions about what, hap what is happening to our culture, what's happening to American society. And one of the things that is very difficult for me to handle is that one question that, that or that one statement that gets posed on public forums, on media, comparing what's the one difference between the United States and all other countries in the world. All countries have uh, pharmaceuticals. All countries have mental health-related problems. What's the one difference? Access to guns. But not all countries have direct-to-consumer <laughs> advertising. Hold on. Pharmaceuticals. Now yeah. you know where I'm going okay. with this, right? So um, there's major differences between the United States and the rest of the world. Let's just talk about some of them. Uh, the rest of the world um, doesn't have the, uh, the amount of chemicals in their food. Start looking at this, how many chemicals that we eat are banned in other countries. Why are they banned in other countries? Because they can induce a lot of these activation symptoms that are problematic. Um, some chemicals induce violence, irritability, depression, anxiety. These dyes that are in our food, our cereals and so forth. We have a healthcare system at a rate that is not comparable to any other country that places young developing brains on multiple mind and mood altering drugs. You cannot compare the United States to other countries. We are the worst. Yes, we have direct-to-consumer drug advertising in the United States. That means they communicate directly to the American people, and the American people go into their healthcare centers asking for the drug under the belief it's going to make them feel better or be healthier. We have a government that purposely divides our people. We have media owned by select companies with a political agenda. We have a sick country with some of the highest obesity rates. We have a culture with drug abuse, rising rates of suicide, and a prescription drug problem. The food and drug companies have power in the way that they control scientific publications and dissemination of information, which fuel a for-profit healthcare system and the allopathic medical model. We have a culture of consumerism, materialism, and addiction to social media and screens that fuels depression, emptiness, and isolation. There are toxins that are banned in other countries, are in many products that are sold to us. We have media that purposely provokes fear and anger and divides the American population. We have a diverse population of over 340 million people in a large country, yet we have the simplest of minds comparing us to a European country with the population size of New Jersey. And this is educated professionals. This is government. This is doctors making those statements. So again, why I'm, I'm just confused as to why that tweet 
doesn't want to spark further conversation about what you stated there. Because they want to continue with the system as there, it is. There are, conditioned. there are some that are putting comments that are providing some of the data that supports what your statement was uh, to look into it further, like providing it to other people in the comments. But the fact is, like, Twitter, the moment somebody puts a comment that attacks you, then it's game on. Because everybody else is then all of a sudden, like, empowered. Oh, is this what we're going to do? I'm going to come at you. Like, I, I believe I, I believe my certain position on this thing, and you're being attacked that supports what I believe. So, therefore, I'm just going to post the same type of reaction that somebody else has already done because now I'm protected. I'm not the individual on the outside, just being the one person. And it's an echo chamber because those individuals are following that person. They're seeing it on their feed, so they just respond to... Totally. Yeah. Yeah. You know what's interesting? What has transpired over the past few decades? The left in our country, the American left, is now widespread support of the industry messaging and government messaging. It used to be that uh, the left stood for the protection of people from government control or big business. Now we, we have a, an entire political left that is supporting big pharma, um, that is, they supported lockdowns and mask wearing and mandates of vaccinations, forced mandates, and actually making statements that people would should lose their individual rights if they don't get a medical intervention. That's a shift. The American left is different than what I identified myself to be as a social liberal and a libertarian, which is to respect all the rights of the individual and the freedoms of the individual um, away from government control and coercion. But you see a lot of a lot of people who do attack me uh, in these in these twitters. They're still wearing masks in their Twitter profile, so I have to think that this has something to do with relationship to fear. So when we talk about uh, differences in political ideology, and there's a culture war, and this podcast is part of the culture war, unfortunately, is differences in relationship to fear. I do believe that many on the political left when fear is provoked, that they are then looking for the, the authority to be able to provide them information that allows them to feel more secure. So they feel safer if they believe there's a solution to, uh, for gun control or that there is a vaccine or there is a mask or somebody is giving them information, do this, and you will be okay. If it comes from the party that they support. Right. Which is the Democrat party. But then people on the right, um, and let's face it, there's differences in uh, religious and spirituality kind of beliefs from the right to the left. More people on the right will talk about their authority being their faith. Their values. Their values and belief in themselves to be able to um, handle the problems that life brings. They're more willing to stand on their own feet and they're not looking for other people to give them either a, a handout or um, 
They're certainly not a, a, a believer in you know government oversight or large-scale government. It's more about individually-based freedom. So there's different relationships to, to fear. There's a distrust on the right of government and big business. And on the left, there seems to be a distrust of people of faith. Now, there's differences of people in faith on the right is they tend to think about their authority being their faith or God, and they see their life differently. They certainly see their life as rather time-limited and not not attached to the physical world in the same way. The more you get disconnected from faith, community, spirituality, the more that your political ideology shifts, I think, to what can be protection and hedonistic qualities of living life. What do I mean by hedonistic quality? Seeking out pleasure, seeking out comfort, seeking out safety. And we've done a lot of different podcasts, like Mental Benefits of hard things yeah. i have to throw in a 75 day hard oh what's wow. the what's the uh i don't know that i think the street was broken but you can always bring it up every now and again right right so there are you know the idea that you do things that are very challenging and difficult and that advances you and there's mental benefits to it and discipline and all these things um the academic elites are on the left and i think that they are pandering to vulnerable people when I see medical professionals or academic elites or governments, they're pandering to vulnerable people who are experiencing fear and don't know how to cope with the fear in effective ways. And so they are turning and externalizing these solutions for someone else to try to save them. And there is a blind trust in that authority. That authority could be the medical authority government authority or the messaging that we're bombarded with on news and media and popular culture. There's a lot packed in there. And I don't know how many people would be receptive to, to hearing that because then they're trying to figure out where they stand. And either if you're the left or the right, I'm kind of in the middle. I think most people are. Yeah, I do. So it's it's hard it's hard to to separate or think that all those things may apply to you. Why would somebody blatantly ignore scientific research and warnings? It's not it's more than blatantly ignoring. They're actually creating a new narrative that opposes it. And then using that narrative to attack somebody who's who's presenting it what is the psychology behind that well i guess it depends on the individual but for some i think it's you know that doesn't apply to me you know it's almost like whatever i'm gonna do yeah there's some potential side effects things could go wrong but that won't ever happen to me that happens to others what's the psychology of that i don't know <laughs> what is the psychology of that i mean i don't know i guess that that's the whole premise of this naivety that we have i think you just don't believe that it's going to affect me the way that it affected that that these shootings and these things that happen are somehow um obviously they're incredibly tragic but they're anecdotal like they're not going to happen so it's not going to happen to me but i don't know what the psychology of that is other than just to protect yourself like th this will work for me and i i guess you just blindly don't see it I'll, I'll throw out a word and you let me know if it has anything to do with this. Is it rooted in some degree of narcissism? I think it is, 
for when it's somebody who is a, a, a medical professional, a person of authority. Uh, there, are, there, is a, there is a high degree of, of, of narcissism when somebody is dismissing clear scientific data or fact and then using a, a, a professional profile, Twitter profile, to attack and criticize that, that view um, as if it's the person. And I also, I, I mean, I just still look at things in terms of people's response or experience to, to fear. And we had Dr. Beach on here a couple episodes ago. And I generally think, you know, think he's a really good guy. It was a great conversation. I, I think he's a good man. But, you know, my read on him is a lot of the information that goes against his training and, and his practice is really threatening. And you end up trying to find ways to, dis, to dismiss that alternative evidence. And so when I bring this evidence up, the responses from some of the, I think, the good guys out there, the, nice, the good women out there, good people who are medical professionals, they'll, they'll just say, well, it, hel it helps some people. Okay, um, let's, let's assume that might be true. Does that change my point? Right. So you're not even entering into the dialogue with how many people they harm. You're just trying to defend why you prescribe it why you practice the way that you do. Is that cognitive dissonance? I mean, you started off talking about that. It's like when somebody's giving you a fact that might contradict with what your beliefs, your values, your strong position is on something, you push back against it. Because yeah. it's really hard to do a mindset shift. I think courage is in short supply in our, in our culture. Because Courage would mean you'd have to admit things that are really painful and difficult for you to have to come to grips with. The idea that you could be harming somebody or you harm someone when you're a good person is painful. Uh, a lot of humans are incapable of even acknowledging it because it doesn't fit their worldview. Courage is being able to stand up for things that you believe to be true or you know to be true. Courage is also about apologizing, accepting responsibility. Courage is about saying things that you know to be right, even though you're going to face backlash and you're going to put yourself at risk. One of the silliest things that was coming from, from Twitter was this idea that I'm financially benefiting from making these comments. How so? <laughs> Ex exactly. uh, as I work, as I, as I am the CFO <laughs> of this business, I can assure you that is not the case. It is, it, in fact, I put myself more at risk. Totally. Yeah. When you go against the mainstream, and you you go against what we are told to be established scientific guidelines, the reason more people don't speak out is because of fear, fear of your livelihood, fear of your license, fear of threats, and I get all those things. I get attacks. On, on, on social media, threats on social media, statements that people should take my license away. We get negative Google reviews for people who don't even live near here or go here um, because of what they read on social media. I'm assuming all the risk. I don't make any money. I put more time into this. This podcast, at least up to this point, doesn't even have an ad in case you notice it. 
So we put, we've put this time in. It's not even the time on the microphone. It's all the research that we're doing. We don't make a penny off of this. That's got to change if we're going to continue this. If we're going to continue this. It's actually an expense. <laughs> yeah, it's an expense. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's got to change. I mean, for all the time, we're going to have to find some way to, to keep this going and to monetize it. But to, to believe that going against what is the mainstream that puts you at risk, allows you to financially benefit, is insanity. The people who uh, you know, tend to financially benefit are the ones who benefit from the current model. So when you see increased drug sales at enormous rates, and we're in a for-profit healthcare system, and the quality of the care is diminishing, that's who you look at who's profiting. You don't look at someone who's getting behind a microphone and, and a Twitter and, and trying to disseminate this research so people can make informed decisions as viewing it as a financial gain. That's insanity. Yeah, I've looked at some of the existing CPT codes, which is used for billing purposes um, when you submit to insurance companies. And there's CPT codes for things like medication management. So somebody could come in to get an updated prescription for their SSRI and you'd spend two minutes talking to them, and then boom, you build that CPT code. And it's just to um, admit that that process or that drug could be harmful would then decrease your business model on that end. You make more money from writing a prescription than you do for behavioral interventions. So if a psychiatrist spent one hour just doing psychotherapy, they would make less money than if they saw four people for, on 15-minute increments and wrote a prescription. And there, there probably are some psychiatrists that do that because that's what's effective, is spending an hour with a client and talking to them yeah. before... It's the know. minority. It, it's, it's the minority in like Dr. Beach who we had on here is, is a guy who does that. And I, I honestly think he's a, you know, a really good man. He's ethical. We have some differences on the, on the medicine side and uh, the, the diagnostic system. But generally speaking, I think there was a lot of agreement. So, but that's not, our mo that's not our current model. It's not the model in our area. We can't find a psychiatrist in our area that spends an hour with somebody um, over weeks and is conservative with the, with the drugs. No, we see large hospital-based systems which have owned everything, and it's multiple, multiple psychiatric drugs outside bounds of safety and efficacy. You were going to say something, Kel? What was interesting, I was looking at your Twitter feed, and um, about a couple hours after that, you, you simply posted, regardless of your ideology and views on whether Americans should lose their Second Amendment rights, shouldn't we answer these questions, um, the questions that you had brought up, and what would lead a person to violence and why someone wants to end their life as opposed to just restricting means? Crickets on that one. That's yeah. like an important question. So basically you said, look, I, you, know, you were responding, and you said, okay, you guys are all upset, but shouldn't this be a question too? Nothing. Absolutely not. I mean, there were a couple of comments, but nothing. That's that's the most logical yeah, it's question. It's, it's reasonable. A, it's a reasonable question. But why? So why wouldn't they want to the same people that attacked? Why wouldn't they go back on that and say, "Okay, so are you admitting this?" But yeah, okay, I can see your point. 
now because that would they they prefer to react emotionally and attack somebody instead of actually having a conversation about solutions. It's easier to attack people. It makes me think of how we treat the suicidal individual in this country. So you can say that suicide prevention would be to take away any means that someone has to end their life and even lock them up in a facility. That's not suicide prevention. That's removing somebody's ability to harm themselves. I care about why somebody would end their life. I care about what is happening in their life to lead them to become so hopeless and in such despair. And everything I want to learn, understand, and help people who are chronically suicidal is how to build a life that has value and purpose and meaning. Not take away your means. That's not the role of a mental health professional, but that's become the American way. And it's also provoked by fear that the way that mental health professionals are trained is around a model of litigation. You, know, you assume responsibility for another person's life provokes fear in the mental health professional and any sign that the person is thinking about suicide becomes a legitimate reason on their end to be able to restrict access means or even violate their own rights and put them into a facility. I think that's a real problematic way to approach people who are suffering. It's counterproductive to what our ultimate goal is. We need to really challenge the system. You know, and I, one of the things that I was reading when it comes to people's response to some of the tragedies that exist in the country and the, and the belief that more laws or more government intervention is going to be uh, protective is I think that a lot of people just live in this bubble where they're not aware of what's happening in countries around the world or historically a lot of things about human nature. I don't trust that our way of life is going to continue in the manner in which we know it throughout the course of our lifetime. I don't trust that because throughout human history, we've seen tragedy. We've seen people lose their rights. We've seen war. We've seen invasion. Um, there's a number of things that are currently occurring in the, in the United States that should have us pause and consider that our way of life as we know it could be at risk. What would happen if our, our grid system, our power grid system in the United States failed for a period of 30 days or more. Mass chaos. Yeah, social framework would break down. People would... Survival of the fittest. Turn to their neighbors and either pull resources or start taking. And we know how human beings react. We don't want to deny that because, you know, once, once chaos ensues, it's... What really does happen is it is survival. And survival mechanisms provoke violence and breakdowns of laws and social conventions. If you couldn't go down the street to get your food, where would you get your food from? If it wasn't available to you, 
if clean water wasn't available in the city system, how would you drink water? Take it from others. Quick story. I was at Virginia Beach this past weekend, and on my drive home, Madison, my oldest, who's in the city of Philadelphia, attends Temple University, contacted me. We just got alert on our phones that there was a chemical spill in the river. I guess that's a Delaware River. Yeah. Yeah. And do not drink the water. This is in Philadelphia. Right, An alert on, on her phone. At that time, she was in a grocery store. People lost it. Mass panic ensued. They were fighting for cases of water. And she called me in tears. At that point, the local government has to do things to quell the panic. Such as? It's okay. Everything is okay. The water is fine to drink into this hour, right? Because? There would be mass panic. If they said, listen, you're, you're, you can't drink the water. It's poisonous. It's toxic. So, of course, I went and got her. <laughs> She's not in the nicest of neighborhoods either. North Philly is a place of high violence. Um, along the way, I was in like Virginia and Maryland and Delaware. I just stopped getting bottled water to give to her roommates, mm. and, I, and I took her home. Smart. My point is we take a lot for granted. And the people on the left who believe other people can save them and they can trust their politician or their medical authority are disconnected from human nature. So when you talk about taking away guns, throughout our United States, there are people who use guns for game, for, for hunting. Hunting that is absolutely necessary too to control different populations. I hear the information from the media about what is an assault rifle and what is not an assault rifle, what is an automatic weapon versus semi-automatic weapon, and they lie, and they make people believe that, um, that rifles that people use for hunting are weapons of, of war, and, that, and that's, the, that's the language. So you're, you're being lied to by the, by the media, and so people who are in the cities or suburbia, they have this distorted view and this distorted idea of the gun culture. All, those, all the people together, large amounts of people in major cities, if that catastrophe happened, which would be uh, something that had to do with uh, the drinking water or a grid breakdown, that's the worst place to be. And when I say there's cultural differences, there's people spread all out America who say, I'm, I'm going to count on myself. If something breaks down in society, I have to have the means to be able to hunt and be able to gather food. I have to have alternative means for energy, for water system. And those people are like, I'm going to need to count on myself. Well, so many in our country are so privileged, they, they can't even fathom the idea that anything can be different. Yeah. And that is part of the reactions on social media. Part of the reactions, it's that fear response, right? They're always 
believing that somebody else is going to save them. That's not, re- that's not realistic. And so people who have, are of a different mindset, when it even comes to medical interventions, there's no blind trust. I don't blindly trust the medical doctor. I don't know if you guys have seen this, but the World Health Organization has now made the statement that the, those vaccinations should, be not, should not be provided to healthy children and adolescents. That was from the WHO, yes. right? World, World Health, Health Organization. Uh, uh, last yes, week. Last week, yesterday? I think it was last week. I, this is something that we talked about two years ago, right? Um, but the assembly line doctors will still tell you, are you getting your, your COVID vaccination? And then you say, why would we do that? Because it's recommended. You're following, you're just following guidelines that someone else is telling you what to do. And that's the problem. This is what we're being exposed to. We're not, we're not talking about independent thinkers. We're not talking about critical thought. We're not talking about critical analysis. It, it, it feels to me like it's a level of brainwashing that people are just kind of like, I don't know, zombies, just repeating back the messages over and over and over again. And I've got my, my, my red flags. When a, when a professional, medical professional, mental health professional says, uses words like misinformation, trust the science, when opening up debate and critical analysis is met with name-calling, or in my field, you're stigmatizing, those are, red, those are all red flags because there's not a willingness to be able to actually face reality as is because reality has become too threatening to that person. That's the provocation of fear, and, and I think those are, are, are problems. I always referred to the media as the Judas sheep. Do you know what that is? No. So like when sheep have to go to slaughter or whatever, and then obviously that, they actually have a sheep that is just trained to calm the herd, and then that sheep leads them in. And I feel like the media has kind of come together with certain narratives that may benefit their media companies and so on. And then people just don't know, um, and they feel like if they do question... Like, you know, Roger posted on Twitter, it was a critical question. It was not an attack on anything other than shouldn't we be looking at this? The, the massive herd just kind of goes right after that and attacks it because that's not what the Judah sheep is saying, right? That's not what is being told of us. So you have to be wrong. And how dare you say these things? But yet it was, it was again, a simple question. Like, Sean, why are, so I believe we have a self-reliance problem in this country. We, like that's an epidemic. Self-reliance, you know, the old essay, right? That is gone. We're teaching people to rely solely on institutions to take care of them, to, to rely on even teachers such as myself. We're supposed to take care of them. We're supposed to do the things for them. Why do we have that problem now? What, where did we go wrong? Well, you're right. Anytime an organization represents... A body of people. I mean, it it start it came into an existence as a solution to a problem. So let's use a, like a doctor. Uh, maybe it's a general practitioner. They're responsible for way too much to stay on top of the data. So they turn back to their their governing body, their organization, whatever represents them, as to be the one that's doing the critical thought, the analysis to make recommendations. So then they don't have to do it themselves. They can just follow what the recommendations are from their representation, their governing body. We need to have higher standards. Yeah. I guess the pushback from some of those doctors would be how, 
how, what, like I'm responsible for so much. How do I find what's trusted? How do I find what's that one resource that I can go to, to clearly talk to my, my patients, my clients from an informed perspective so that they can then make the decisions that's right for them. Yep. Good it's point. Hard. Yeah, it's, hard. It's, it's very hard. And here's where I say there needs to be a higher standard. So if you are a medical professional that is working in that system, then be honest. Say, I am following guidelines that are told to me they are best available evidence. Don't say they're best available evidence unless you know they're best available evidence. I'm not going to say something unless I've been able to research that myself. And so when you go on public forums or you tell your patients that this is best available evidence, just because it was told to you, no, you need a higher standard because you have a license, you have a certain standing in American culture and society that people are going to trust what you say as if you know that knowledge yourself, you've done the work yourself. And I know you're working 60-hour weeks. I know our healthcare centers are overwhelmed. I know it's a stressful job. Then just acknowledge the truth. Some of the things that our doctors are saying in our healthcare system are 30 years behind the scientific evidence. 30 years. The, the American Academy of Pediatrics, I put a tweet out not too long ago where um, I identified their major don't, uh, their top donors. What do you imagine are the top donors for the American Pediatric Association? It's got to be pharmaceutical. Pharmaceutical, um, biomedical food. Yeah. Right? So, uh, you know. That they, influences. It influences their guidelines. They, they don't exist without that money. They don't exist without that money. But how? I want to know the psychology of the highly educated that refuses to ask challenging questions and think critically and independently. Because the system worked for them. Mm. The system worked for them. So they're at their status because they followed those rules, those guidelines, and now they're there, right? And so they only know that system. And so when anyone comes in, a teacher such as myself that says, listen, here's what the guidelines say, uh, but I've done some research into it. I'm telling you, there's also this. If I say that, and this person above me who went through the system, God above me, sits there and says, you how dare you say that? Didn't we have this conversation of back course. in like 2004? Yeah. When we were talking about education as rote memorization and just feeding back facts and how it served certain people and not others. Yeah. Here, and you tried to throw the system upside down. Of course. Here are the answers. You study them and now you're going to vomit them back on a page and I'm going to give you a grade. That's how it works. And I, I couldn't stand that. I didn't think that was critical thought. I thought we were taking away critical thought from kids. So yes, I turned it upside down with a lot of criticism and things like that. But yeah, that's not learning. That's no. memorizing. Of course. Um, I just put out a, a social media thing yesterday about um, the brain and you know making sure that you, your cognitive abilities don't decline with age. And one of the like, most uh, recognized benefits comes from failure. And that is what truly learning is, is trying to learn a skill. 
It could be a language. And studying that language, making mistakes and failing and using the brain to like retrain yourself to then speak more accurately and develop that skill over time, that's what has been contributed to a lot of people in terms of having longevity, but also productive longevity, not just, you know, sitting and, and declining cognitively and physically. It's like staying active and keeping your brain working. So if, if you think about school, it's not just memorizing and repeating because that paper or the, the position of this one uh, neuroscientist was saying like, if you're doing a job like data analysis and all you're doing is plugging in data, that's not doing a benefit because you're almost going on autopilot. You're not, you're not failing. You're not using that part of your brain that really, that, uh, that learns and repeats and fails. And, and that's what really is the benefit coming from. So why wouldn't the school be that way? The school should be trying to get people to think critically, make mistakes, fail, reevaluate their position on things, come at it from another angle and then really, you know, come at it and, have a strong belief about something because the system is grade oriented and the outcome is the grade. So if you achieve the A's, then you have done a substantial job in that system. So then you go off and you be rewarded. And so when you look back on how you did that, you may not remember all of the things you just said that you did to get the A. All of the things that you did were again, effort, failing multiple times, mm -hmm. hard work. All you saw was the achievement, the diploma, and so then you move into the corporate world or you move into the academic world or whatever, and you forget all the things you just said. You're not, you didn't achieve simply because you got an A. You achieved because of all, of all those little things that you did, the hard work, the effort, the failing, um, you know, all of those things. You just kind of, nope, right? That needs to be addressed more. But you can't do that in the current system with the grades the way they are, right? You just can't. And no one's willing to change still training overall the that system. Still the training the, fac uh, the factory worker mentality, right? It is yeah. the assembly line. And, and highly trained medical professionals, and it's a very difficult job, and um, really smart people have to graduate medical school. Yeah. But we can't also deny that the, the training is part of the assembly line. Now, there are the top surgeons, there are the top physicians, there are the, and they're doing innovative research, and they're doing a lot of things. But most of what we're exposed to are the front lines of the medical care system is the primary care system. And then you break it down into, into specialties so everyone's separated. Although the whole body kind of in, interacts with each other. So, you know, the, the primary care doctor will refer this to endocrinology, this to neurology, this to cardiology. And we've lost a sense of how everything works together to prevent disease. And so we're, not, we're no longer treating the whole person we are treating us as if we were like separate parts like a mechanic and you try to treat this part or treat that part however they don't understand that you go to the psychiatrist and you take the ssri well then that impacts potentially gut microbiome which the person might develop irritable bowel and then that person is sent to the in internist and the gastro doc and then you know, they, they do a medical intervention there that creates something else somewhere in the body and they refer them to another person. That's what we've become. And in order for the large care hospital systems that are have bought up all primary care units is to, for them to be able to be profitable and make money, the assembly line has to work logistically in a certain way. You have to see so many patients in a certain amount of time. 
So when you call up and you schedule and they say, doctor, we'll see you at 9.15, you know, they have a 9. They have a 9.15. They have a 9.22. You know, and you have to stay on that schedule. So it is healthcare model, you know, quick fast food style. Let me get some symptoms and let me find the drug that's based on this protocol. Let me give you that prescription and you're on your way. And you end up treating symptoms without cause. And I do believe too many of the medical professionals just become detached from humanity because you don't really know your patients in the same way. It's not like you were the, sm- the small town doc or you, you served your community and you knew their families. It's not like that anymore. You know, you're, you're, you're into a large hospital system and that primary care unit might have like 15 different doctors and, you know, five nurse practitioners and other medical professionals that are just part of the system. They don't get to know you. And I, th- I think that that's a big problem to this. And yes, you do talk to them. They, they say they're out of options. This is how they're trained to be able to provide health care. And this is leading to the overprescribing of psychiatric drugs in our community. The more the prescribing of psychiatric drugs in the community, the percentage of people that it's harmed is going to just increase the likelihood of violence on self and others is also going to increase. That's just math. That's statistics. And so um, these are facts. They're very inconvenient. They're threatening, but they're true. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.